Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your co-host, Carl, and with me as always, I have Aton. Hi, Carl. And today, we're going to explore and change the format a little bit more, and it's going to be part of a regular series we're calling AUA, or Ask Us Anything. This is actually kind of coming out of our business school background. Back in business school, both of us had this experience in multiple venues where uh, these things called AMAs were very common, or Ask Me Anythings. And with that, it's a really interesting way to get to know people better and also kind of plumb their brains about what they like, what they don't like, what they're thinking. And we wanted to do some of that here. It's also something that I really enjoyed about these sessions in business schools was that people took them really seriously and they asked very good kind of deep personal questions and people also the people when you when it was your turn to answer you also usually try to share a little bit more of your soul and i think so far at least for today we got some pretty good questions so we hope we hope to keep that tradition going going forward it should be fun this week we are trying to kind of inject our own questions as well but hopefully in future episodes we won't have to source our own questions we'll have other people asking but we we had some good questions come in today and we're excited to dig into these but first as always we want to hit some quick news items the biggest news item this week is the death of chadwick boseman which was really unsettling horrifying and deeply sad he died this week at the age of 43 apparently had been suffering colon cancer since 2016 and he was best known for black panther which he was in i believe four marvel films but he also did a lot of other work, uh, biopics like Marshall Get On Up in 42. He was in Spike Lee's To Five Bloods this year, and he has one more film, at least Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, that's coming out at some point in the next few months or year. It was, I think, from one side, of course, very tragic because it was very kind of unexpected. Uh, it wasn't public that he was dealing dealing with this for the past four years now. And he he was also a very kind of a very powerful figure, both in terms of his uh, you know off screen persona himself, but also he he played a, a lot of like very powerful roles. It makes me think when I think of him, I think there is this word in Hebrew called madrich, which comes from the from the root of like derech, which means road. So a madrich is not a teacher; he is kind of a Someone that guides you, somebody that shows you the road, and he played a lot of of these types of roles. Whether it was Black Panther and the, how powerful it was, whether it was Thurgood Marshall, the first African American uh, Supreme Court Justice, Forty Two, Jackie Robinson, the first African American in in major leagues, and and even in the Five Bloods, which was the it was the last movie that I saw from him in Netflix, where he played this character called Stormy Norman, which he was basically like this kind of almost like Jesus-like figure that guided this African-American um, troop through the Vietnam War. So it feels like every time that I thought about him, whether it was his on-screen persona based on all the characters that he played, but also his work outside, he seemed to be like this type of person that people really looked up to because of how he represented both fictionally and in real life, which it was I think it made it just very, very sad. It's truly heartbreaking it's just like Anton Yelchin or uh, Heath Ledger but even 
worse just because of what he represents, especially at this time in American history, because he was the first major black superhero that was accessible to so many audiences, not like a blade where it's kind of gatekept by ratings and genre. He really represented so much to a lot of people and a lot of kids. And now he's gone. You touch on the power that he has, but like something that really shows that is the fact that like he kept this under wraps and he re- did all of the stunt work and all the press and all the recording and everything for Black Panther of these really grueling shoots all while under treatment from colon cancer and just really shows the power of him and what he was willing to put himself through just to kind of make an impact. And there's, I've seen criticism before, obviously all that's happened uh, with, with him recently about the character of Black Panther being kind of one of the least interesting characters in the film Black Panther. But that's kind of the point. You're able to project just like Captain America, project like goodness and absolute good versus evil onto that character and it might not be as tortured and interesting as a killmonger or a tony stark but you kind of need that and i think the black community needed that and it's really horrifying and depressing to see him gone yeah yeah absolutely and it seems like the the reaction from the public so far has been has been super strong i mean not that this is a a strong indicator of anything but the tweet where he's family i guess announced it is now the most liked tweet in twitter history and um uh, ryan coogler who was the director of of black panther had a a very very strong very powerful statement about him and what he represented um everyone that worked with him also just speaks super super highly about him as a person and as an actor um definitely gonna miss him was looking forward to see all the places he would go. He definitely felt like he was still like at the beginning of his career, even though he already had like this yeah. set of super strong, powerful performances. And right, I my heart goes out to his family and to all of his fans that are far more impacted by this, even just as a role model. It's it's really terrifying and in just kind of an existential sense. I am really interested to see what happens with the Oscars race this year because. Spike Lee's The Five Bloods has already been getting some traction just because who knows what this Oscar year is. There's really not that much out there. And I think Netflix work really has the strongest chance because people are able to ruminate on it and see it and really engage with it in a way that they might not other films that are that are coming out that we're probably going to talk about in a minute. But uh, I think people were already thinking about its best picture chances. He's gotten a lot of praise for the work in that film. I think it could be just kind of a, a Heath Ledger thing and he rightfully gets a nomination and maybe a win out of it and we'll see what the legacy of that film is with respect to him. But for right now, I think it's just time to let people grieve and, and think about like what his career was and just what it's going to mean legacy-wise. I'm planning... I wanna, I'm going to rewatch 42 tonight right after this to, to see him. I need to see the... I still need to see The Five Bloods. It's on my list. So I'm going to tackle that in probably the next week it's pretty great let me know what you think i will i have a format for that now but (laughs) (laughs) on the the front of other films that could potentially be up for oscars this year we've got tenet and the mulan release that that's pending later this week so tenet has opened worldwide it's opening this weekend in the states whatever that means in a lot of markets but 
they're doing decently well. Not the numbers you would expect from a big opening that they need, but for the world right now, especially for international markets, I think their numbers have been pretty good. I was surprised a little bit, I have to say, because I I saw, like you mentioned, right? It opened in the US, but there aren't many... The major, the mo- the biggest markets, at least in the U.S., are not open. Whether that is New York or most of California, um, so seeing it reach fifty-seven, like you mentioned, it's not, you know, Avengers is not what they were gonna be able to make, but it is significantly more than I thought they were gonna get in the first week, and I guess right. it speaks to where where it could reach at least over the next month. Uh, this was an expensive movie to make. I think it's still gonna be TBD if, if they're gonna be able to make it. Uh, get the return that they wanted, which I think is going to be very difficult under these um, under these circumstances. But like, good for them. There is definitely an appetite for people to go back to the movies. That's my biggest takeaway. Oh, for sure, especially in these international markets. We, and to clarify, the number was fifty-seven million. That's how much we've or how much Tenet has pulled in over the last week. We expect that to grow. I just pulled up the numbers right now around. Dunkirk and Interstellar. Nolan's films do well internationally. They actually, unlike a lot of films, pull in most of their their budget or most of their receipts from international markets. Interstellar did 466 million worldwide in 2014. Dunkirk did 330 worldwide in 2017. People are comparing this one more to Interstellar or even Inception, right? Inception, because it is marketed as more of a thriller as opposed to a war film. That Dun- Dunkirk's a weird and beautiful film. I, I love it, but it, it is certainly a less marketable film than certainly Inception or the Dark Knight trilogy. So 57 is good for right now, for the world we're in right now, but it's not going to be enough for to match what they need, which I think we've said in previously previous episodes, they need about 800 million in box office to break even. And then you have to add marketing costs and everything on top of that. So they're very slowly going to maybe reach that. Maybe with VOD sales, I imagine VOD will come quicker than, than usual with this, but it's doing all right. Reviews are a little, little spotty, but it seems like to be more of an interstellar, like weird Nolan, head trip thing so i i would expect mixed reviews from that right one of those where either you connect with it and you love it or you're just more confused by the premise than actually excited about it right i feel like that happened with inception a lot of people love it and live mm-hmm. by it and there are a lot of people who's like uh, i left with so many questions that i don't know if i was able to enjoy it as as much as i could but to your point, I, I feel like if I was in the Warner Brothers boardroom, I would have to be happy about this first weekend. Given the circumstances, this feels strong. After they made the decision and they stuck with this date, it seems positive. It is more positive than I expected. I, I wouldn't consider it strong if I was a Warner Brothers exec, but I wouldn't be dismayed. I doubt they're going to pull in a ton of money from the from a US release right now, but I, I think, I don't know, getting it in the news pushing it out there it's fine uh interested to see what happens next i'm not a nolan fanboy in as much as i don't think like nolan fanboys are always about the prestige or or memento or the dark knight or just the really bro-y films of his i i think uh, so patrick willems 
fantastic creator. He's on, on YouTube. He did a series about how IMAX radically transformed Christopher Nolan's kind of visual palette. Highly recommend seeking that video out. But really that vibes with my own perspective on Nolan, which is I have always I have found his later period work to be more fascinating just because it is a little more expansive. He's trying to connect emotionally with the viewer and the story a bit more than maybe his earlier work. It's a lot less clinical. So I'll I will take messy Nolan over perfect Nolan any day. So excited to see it, whenever that might be. Whenever that might be indeed. In the other in the other spectrum of the decisions on how to distribute the film is Mulan. Uh, we talked two weeks ago how Disney decided to not follow the Tenet lead and actually put it in what is called premium video on demand. So Disney created this new tier within Disney Plus. We're starting this Friday, September 4th. You're going to be able to pay $30 on top of your Disney subscription to not rent, but basically get access to Mulan um, for as long as you are a Disney Plus subscriber. Something interesting that happened this week is that some people started to find in their Disney Plus interface that the Mulan description shows that it's going to be available for all Disney Plus subscribers for free, so just as your regular streaming movie, in December 4th, on December 4th. So that's exactly three months after it's available on premium demand. And the first reaction, at least from the the Twitter world and some of the, the media, was this seems like a short window. This seems like if you are thinking about buying it, now that you know when it's coming to regular, quote-unquote, Disney+, Plus, you might not get it. And I actually, I don't agree with that. My first reaction was that this is actually good. In the new streaming world, the more information you give consumers, the better, especially compared with like the all the problems that things like HBO has and where to get it. Not that Disney Plus needs any goodwill, but imagine you buy it for $30 on Thanksgiving weekend, the last weekend of November, and then a week later it just appears for free. You're going to be angry, right? And I think this, this doesn't really change the buying decisions from most people are going to get it this weekend or next week whether it's people with families whether it's people like me that just want to get something new and really like disney it just i thought it was an overall positive thing give people information let them decide based on that and just positive curse curse what do you think i agree with that uh, with the way these theatrical releases any work these days anyway people are either going to pay to see it the first few weeks or they're not like if this was if this was September fourth and October fourth, as opposed to September fourth and December fourth, it might be a bit different. But by December fourth, in the real world, people will have already paid to have paid to see Mulan or not paid to see Mulan, and then it goes on VOD or Disney Plus or whatever, and it gets more money that way. I I don't buy the logic. I think in this case, it shows that Disney is trying to experiment with us and. Uh, is really trying to make their money back as opposed to potentially just taking advantage of its captive audience. But all in all, this is cheaper than a family scene in the theater. This is something that I think is pretty at cost for Disney in the VOD world. Yeah, and just to bring some some numbers back here. So this week uh, was reported Mulan cost around $200 million to produce plus marketing cost. So... Expensive, but not your top-of-the-line uh, Disney, Marvel, Star Wars movies. Um, if you think about it at $30, that's around 6.6 .6 million subscribers or households getting it, which is 10% of Disney Plus subscribers. 
it might still be a little bit high, just given the, the price points of 30, trying to, to get to 6.6 .6 million subscribers getting it. But I guess two, two things here worth highlighting. The first one is that that excludes if Mulan gets some new subscribers into Disney+, Plus, and then the amount of money they decide to stay, at least for a couple of month, months, and then you can think about it kind of as a customer acquisition cost. And then the other thing is, we, we've talked about it, right, that Disney is not like Netflix, that every dollar that they put in, the only way that they get it up is out is through subscriptions. They can see this as a point where they don't have to make absolutely all the money back right now. And it just, it, it like you said, it's an experiment of saying, hey, we can't delay all the movies forever and just find a place to Mulan. It is a pretty important, it's a, it's a tentpole movie, but I can probably name seven movies from Disney from last year that were bigger than this one, right? Whether it's Star Wars or Endgame or Frozen 2 or The Lion King live action. It, like, it's 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 up there, but it's not that up there. It seems like they got also a little bit kind of lucky, even even though it was a, a difficult decision it's, for them. It's, okay, last year was an abnormal year for Disney. Last year was kind of the Definitely. peak of every major franchise they had. This year was going to be a disappointment compared to last year, no matter what. But the more things play out the more it it appears that, oh, this kind of worked out in Disney's favor because Mulan was going to be fine. Onward wasn't going to perform as it wanted to. You have Artemis Fowl and New Mutants, which New Mutants got dumped in theaters last week. It made a decent amount of money. I think it made like $20 million or something. Like It made way more money in the States than you would think it would. I think people just really want to see it, but it sounds like that was kind of a disaster and they couldn't release it straight to VOD for contract reasons. I think... This ended up being an okay year for the Walt Disney Studios. Next year's a recovery year from the lack of production this year, and then we'll see what happens after that. Yeah, and just, just to close us out, so just for context, I'm moving this week, and I'm selling everything, and I'm getting rid of my TV. And I decided to wait to get rid of my TV till uh, Saturday so that I can watch Mulan on Friday. <laughs> so I'm watching it. I'm going for it. I don't want to watch it in a, in a little screen. So I research purposes, Carl. We, I need to talk about this next week, having watched it, and see how the experience goes. Well, I can tell you right now, I will probably not be watching Mulan this weekend. Uh, my fiancé and I have put aside this Friday to watch I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the new horror thriller from Charlie Kaufman, which, that's a weird genre plus writer mashup. I mean, everything he does is existentially horrifying. I read the source material, actually, in like kind of a two-and-a-half-hour binge last week. Really excited to see what he does with it, but big Charlie Kaufman nerd and just it's gonna be a weekend for movies which is the first time I can say that in six months so excited that we both are excited about seeing a movie for the first time in forever right and speaking of movies I think this is a perfect segue into the first couple of questions that we got let's do it um the first three actually are were actually pretty close in in terms of topic so why don't we hit those together? Cool. The first question that we got comes from uh, from Igal. And he asks, I would like to understand a little bit better what is the movie value chain. I don't understand why some movies have like five or seven logos at the beginning, but then things like Disney only has one. But then there are things like Pirates of the Caribbean when they it's Disney, but it also has Jerry Bruckheimer. What's going on? So why don't you get us kicked off on this one, Carl? I have the Google Doc in front of us with the extra questions here, and I'm going to actually bring them in here for okay. to color more context here. So 
Uh, next set of questions is what is the movie process? Like, how do these things come out of the ether? And who makes it first? Is it the writer, the producer, the director? And how much say does the director have? And that actually colors the first question quite a bit. So the movie value chain in our first episode, we talked about it. And it was definitely an oversimplification uh, so as to not complicate things. It was our first episode. (laughs) There's enough of me monologuing in that episode for uh, a few episodes. But essentially, you have the producers make the thing, the distributors put it out there, and the exhibitors are the ones that, like, actually show it, whether it's streaming or a theater or home video or whatnot. And in studio, a lot of studios, it's kind of all-in-one. Uh, in more independent ventures, it's less all-in-one. But you have to think of, with the exception of, of a studio film, a lot of these things happen independently. So the first thing is the development process. So what, how does this get made? That's the, the fancy word for how this stuff comes to be. And it really depends. Uh, it can be anything. It could be an upstart person uh, writing her screenplay and sending it off to a lot of people and somebody likes it and decides that they want to actually turn that into a movie. And the person that decides that is the person usually that has money, access to capital. Okay, they have access to capital, (laughs) access to property, and access to talent. That's what a, a producer needs in order to actually make something. And so that the producer's going to connect all the dots and make sure they actually have the money to make such a thing, have the rights to the intellectual property to actually develop it. Maybe it's original, and that's great. That's the easiest. But they have to kind of lock down the copyright with the, the writer. And then access to talent. And then talent can be anyone from the director to the cinematographer to people in front of the camera. But that's what a producer does. The producer is kind of like the project manager. They cultivate everything from its generation. So sometimes the producer has an idea and then they go hire a writer or hire a director. Sometimes a director or a writer director wants to come up with something and goes and finds a producer or a writer. So you kind of need all three and it doesn't really matter in what order, but no matter what, it's really important that these people have access to capital, access to intellectual property and access to talent. And that feeds into the question as to how much the say the director has. So a first-time director who's never made anything and you have no way of proving how much money they're going to make on something, they're usually not going to have a lot of say. But someone like Christopher Nolan can command a $400 million budget on Tenet because he has proven he can make multi-billion dollar movies that are really interesting and are really intellectual and he can get whatever he wants made. So that's just kind of the process of how it starts. Anything you want to add there, Eitan, before I keep yeah. monologuing? <laughs> It definitely sounds like it's like a an all of the above type of answer. Yes. Right? It it can start in, in a lot of different places. Like you mentioned in these three pillars. If you're if you're a big studio, you might have all of them already. You might have the intellectual property because it's yours. You might have talent because they might work in-house. So just an example, Disney animation, they don't hire directors of the street to direct a movie and then leave directors work for Disney full-time and they stay in the studio even if they're not actively directing a movie. Um, but you can also have... There is this scene in in Argo, right? When they're trying to find a script, a script and it just... There's just piles of scripts that people send and then right. hopefully someone 
a producer or somebody else is going to read it, choose it, and then try to get it for them from them. So it's definitely one of those where it's all of the above. It absolutely is. Yeah, Argo is a, a great example there. Uh, another example I like is the producers, the mm-hmm. musical slash old movie slash new movie, but it it's a very comical walk as to like how you walk through how you would produce a musical, which is very similar to how you produce a film, except obviously in the producers, they're trying to make a flop. So they try and find the worst talent on every side and try and scam everyone out of their money. But yeah, watch Argo, watch the producers. You can get a pretty good balance of understanding of how it's made. Uh, I also recommend if you're really interested in understanding what a producer does all day and how this stuff gets developed, I really recommend reading Christine Vachon's Shooting to Kill. Vachon is a indie producer. She came up in the new queer cinema movement of the 90s with Todd Haynes, uh, Todd Salons, lots of Todds. But she's a great producer. She wrote this book in the late 90s, early 1000s. It just kind of walks through a very like scrappy upstart version of how this gets made. When you're at a studio, it's way easier. But, uh, so that's, yeah, that's the the process of how it gets made. So that's what the production does. And then we have all the other stuff in the value chain. I think exactly what you were saying of what the production does. It clicked for me. So in the Oscars, when they announced Best Picture, the person that gets the Oscar is the producer. So yes. maybe it's, it's also an oversimplification, but maybe a good rule of thumb is the producer is kind of the driver of the movie, right? He owns the movie and he pulls everything together. This, of course, varies a little bit, but there are places where the writer and the director are the same person. The producer is the same person. But I think that helped me guide a little bit. Right. And so a great example of this is I was listening to a podcast earlier about the film The Old Guard, the, the Netflix movie that came out earlier this year. And that was actually developed by Skydance Entertainment, which is David Ellison's company. Yes, Ellison, Larry Ellison's son, David Ellison. His daughter, uh, Megan Ellison, runs Annapurna, which is also a major production firm, but an indie production. Yeah, like lots of billionaires give their kids money to go found studios. Go play. pretty common, actually, and funny. But yeah, David Ellison, he purchased the rights to the, to the comic the old guard is based off of he brought in gina prince bythewood to cultivate and direct the film and they did all of this development work in-house at skydance before seeking other opportunities and netflix ends up being the distributor and the exhibitor but netflix also came in and was a producer so essentially the producers cover the creative work of making the film and putting it together and pulling all the the strings that that need to happen to make such a thing and then sometimes they need more money which is probably what happened here is they don't want to go in on all of this risk together because some of these things are really risky that's why you see some movies that have 10 logos at the beginning especially in recent times you see movies that have 10 logos three of which are Saudi and three of which are Chinese because mm-hmm. these companies in other countries are trying to get a cut of the profits. And then they are all taking on the risk of developing this thing, building this thing, or just paying to get the thing made. And then it goes on to the distributor, which might be a studio. It might be an independent company like 824. Who knows? And then it'll go to the exhibitor, which usually is not going to have a logo unless they put some skin in the game. 
I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense. That was a very nice nice way to explain it. And I think it's also a pretty good segue into the next question. And you'll see how I'm going to bring it back. So the next question actually comes from from my girlfriend from Ariella. We watched the last Black Man in San Francisco yesterday. Beautiful beautiful film. Film highly recommend for everyone that hasn't watched it. And this is a film by um, Jimmy Fails and Joe Talbot. These are childhood friends grew up in San Francisco and they have this idea for a movie. They want to make a semi-biographical movie about the life of, of, of Jimmy, one of them. They raise uh, kickstarted with around $75,000 to try to get it done. And when we are reading this story, Ariela turns to me and says, why do movies need so much money? Right? This movie, it's beautiful, but you can tell it's kind of low budget. It might not have as as much stuff happening. So I think this is also a nice way for Carl, for you to enlighten us a little bit of where, why they might need so much money. But also, this movie has a very interesting story of how it got to get actually released and distributed. So also to show kind of how those parts that you just talked about actually come together into a, a final film. Right. Well, I actually don't know much about the story besides the fact that Fails and... Talbot wrote this film together. Uh, I'll let you enlighten us on, on what the actual story is there. But this goes back to, I recommend just read Shooting the Kill. Great book, really enlightening on how all this works. It's a little dated because it's in the film era. It's actually a little cheaper to make a film today when it's all digital and you don't have to pay for film stock. But just, I'm going to throw a kitchen sink of things at you that you need <laughs> to pay for. And this, it'll begin to become very clear as to why this is expensive. So first of all, you have to pay for the talent. All of these people, the PGA, the DGA, and the SAG, so the Producers Guild, the Directors Guild, and the Screen Actors Guild, all are unions that dictate how much a piece of talent needs to be paid at, like, at a minimum. So first of all, all these people have minimum quotes. They might be taking points on the back end or something to offset those quotes, but they're going to be they're going to need to be paid a certain amount of money an hour and it's not minimum wage it's hundreds of dollars an hour on this these sets they're going to need catering which is going to cost money they're going to need health care or they you need to pay a certain fee back into the sag the dga whatnot to pay for their general health care uh, a lot of times you ha you have a minimum requirement if the they need to fly somewhere. It has to be business class. People don't drive themselves to set because of unions. There's all these costs of just like keeping the talent happy and the unions happy. Uh, you have the Teamsters, which is a union that controls how things actually get shipped around. And you want to hire a Teamster rather than a kid that drives a truck because the Teamsters are insured and the Teamsters are guaranteed that they're going to do it. And they're going to do it at half the speed. So you want to pay twice the amount of money. So that's just from the talent perspective. Uh, that's not even counting the, all the people. You need hundreds of people, or even a few dozen people to actually man a set. What you see on a screen, like, if you've ever tried, like, taking a video on an iPhone, you know it's not very, like, beautiful. Like, you need lighting, you need sound, you need all these people making it look like this perfect world. Uh, something in, in Black, Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, you... It's this gorgeous digital 
cinematography. So that's going to use probably an Ari or a red camera. And that's a $10,000 camera that you probably rent for a few thousand dollars over the life of the shoot. You need hard drives. You need an editing bay. You need a uh, composer. You need some, you need to pay all the musicians to make the soundtrack. Uh, you have to pay entrance fees to Sundance to actually be exhibited at Sundance. It just goes on and on and on. It is nickels and dimes, and just every time you turn around, somebody else needs another thousand bucks. And that's how it ends up being something like Last Black Man in San Francisco, which was made for $2 million. Like, that's cheap. That is a indie budget. Because it just requires a lot to make a movie that looks like a movie and sounds like a movie and feels like a movie. When you talk about this, my first reaction, I go back to what we talked last week of how the barrier to entry is so incredibly high. Right, yeah. You might have an idea, an awesome script. You might have something that is worth doing. But just getting it done and getting it released is so, so, so difficult. It's, and, it's, such and, an, it's just an interesting industry where, where that barrier and those obstacles that you have to overcome to get it are just complicated. They are. And that's why I really respect filmmakers like Sean Baker and Steven Soderbergh who are really pushing like iPhone cinematography and trying to experiment with that. Because at least that's one barrier to entry out of the way you could like teach yourself how to use an iphone running filmic pro which is an app that costs 15 bucks that allows you to do a lot of professional stuff but even then like soderbergh and uh, to a lesser extent baker they're gonna bring in like thousand dollar lighting rigs and sound rigs and everything to actually make it sound and look right but at least like the camera is one barrier out of the way and that's really the mission of uh a lot of people right now is trying to figure out how to lower the barrier to entry and things like TikTok are teaching people how to do this stuff with a iPhone camera and nothing else. So I think the barrier to entry is always lowering all the time, but you want to talk about the barriers to entry to the last black man in San Francisco, for example. Right. Yeah. I think it's a perfect example. Perfect. Perfect example. So I talked a little bit about how Talbot and Fails uh, grew up together in San Francisco. They have this idea for a movie when they're, when they are, around 20 or 22 years old they want to record it in san francisco it's a very san francisco story san francisco doesn't really have that much of an indie film industry so they run into a lot of issues there is some stories that talbot got some initial advice from barry jenkins the director of, of moonlight and if Bill street could talk literally via a cold email where he got a couple of tips in then in 2016 2015 sorry they run a kickstarter campaign for the movie that raises $75,000, wow. which is not enough. But it generates a little bit of film industry interest, which helps them in 2017 to get to Sundance, but with another film that they do, a short film called American Paradise. Sundance, just for context in case you don't know, is, would you say, the biggest independent film festival in the world? One of the biggest? Yes, the independent label gets bandied around now it's a, a lot more like it's independent but like all the studios will go acquire the very things bougie, even have very... pushing things like i think this was acquired by a24 but it was produced by plan b which is brad pitt's company like it's still like it's not like a bunch of people shooting things by themselves anymore but like you said they had to get to sundance on a short by themselves in order to finance it Right, they get to Sundance on, on that short, and that's where they meet Christina O from Plan B. Yeah. They meet her. They she's heard about this other story from this feature length feature length movie that they wanna shoot. 
Apparently, she introduces them to the rest of the Plan B team in the, a shooting for Adastra, the, the Brad Pitt movie. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where, where things get launched, basically. Apparently, they also got some help because Danny Glover, legendary actor, he's originally from San Francisco. He got interested in the film and he reached out to, to try to help. And this is all that they had to go, get through in order to start actually doing right. what they needed to do. I'm really glad they did. I'm glad they pushed through because it's a beautiful film, great soundtrack. Highly recommend. I know that's yeah. a tangent from the from the questions, but I re- I really liked it. It's a it's a really poignant story about the barriers to entry to owning a house and actually being able to live in the modern Bay Area that's consumed by the the tech industry. Like it's it's a very I can think apt example to talk about in comparison to how hard it is to break into this industry but it all goes back to these three pillars the access to capital the access to intellectual property and the access to talent phils and tabit talbot had access to intellectual property they had a great idea they had this thing they made from scratch but they didn't have money and they didn't have talent except for phils does star in the film he's excellent in the film like he he does have talent but he can't fill an entire film that's saleable based on just his performance so they had to bring in other people and that's why they needed producers and that's why they needed plan b and the boost from sundance but the the whole make a short film to show your style and then uh, get a deal out of that it's very common it's also very common to take a short film and expand it so damien chazelle did that with whiplash with the short film whiplash what's what's his name uh the District 9 guy, uh, Neil Blomkamp. Oh, yeah, South African. District 9 was originally a short film called Alive in Jayburg, I think. And same thing. like It's a demo (laughs) of what this thing could be if they had $2 million instead of $20,000. So really cool, huge barriers to entry. So we have another question about barriers to entry and kind of on this theme of intellectual property being a barrier to entry. You want to give us some color on this, Eitan? So another question that we got has to do with a, a fight that's been going on over the past few weeks in terms of, yeah, in the copyright world. And this, this question comes from Kevin, and he asks us, could you elaborate on the Doyle family lawsuit against Netflix and their upcoming Enola Holmes movie with Carl's favorite Henry Cavill? He literally asked that. And how it might give the Ninth Circuit once again an opportunity to incrementally expand copyright. Do you want to give us a little bit of context? Well, I mean, the context there is that Henry Cable is a very interesting actor and very hot, <laughs> especially in Mission Impossible Fallout, one of my favorite movies of the decade. So you should just go watch that instead of listening to the rest of this podcast, honestly. That's a takeaway but... from the question. Okay, next question. <laughs> yeah, Henry Cable's great. The actual question here. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It just kind of shows how a lot of these lawsuits kind of come out of the woodwork once things get enough traction, too. These books, so it's the Enola Holmes Mysteries. They are uh, kind of a pastiche of Sherlock Holmes. He's a character. He is Sherlock. She is Sherlock's sister. And these books were written 2006 to 2010 by Nancy Springer. This was kind of under the radar until Netflix announced that they were adapting them into a film. I'm not sure how many are being adapted to a film. And then this year in June... The Arthur Conan Doyle estate brought a lawsuit against Springer the writer as well as Netflix and everyone trying to 
actually make this movie. Everyone. The lawsuit, yeah, seems like exactly. Seems like Penguin Random House and everyone that has anything to do with the Enola Holmes books and movie and everything. Yeah, just literally just like everyone, just nuclear. And it's fascinating because the vast majority of the Sherlock Holmes stories are in the public domain, which means that the copyright has lapsed, the legal term has lapsed, so you can, you're free to remix and reimagine the works and the characters in any way you choose. But this shows an interesting quirk of the public domain is that it doesn't cover like characters and improvements to the characters when some of those improvements are outside of the public domain. So for example, like Wizard of Oz, you can use the characters of, of Dorothy and the Scarecrow and Toto, but you can't use the exact colors and exact outfits they wore in the MGM movie because those are covered under a different copyright than the original L. Frank Baum book. Yeah, and in this in this example, like you mentioned, most of the stories are in public domain, but apparently there are 10 that were written by Conan Doyle in the late parts of his life that are still copyright. And during these last 10 stories, Sherlock Holmes becomes more emotional. He cares a little bit more about the people around him, and he cares a little bit more about Watson. And apparently in the movie, because Enola is his sister, he cares about her. So kind of what the state is... There are what their argument is is because you're using parts of these ten stories that are under copyright, this sentimental part of Sherlock Holmes, which he doesn't show in this part of his his story that it's in the public domain. This is actually copyrighted. Just also for a little bit of context, there was another lawsuit I think six years ago around this similar topic where the they were they were saying that the whole Sherlock Holmes character needed to be under copyright. Just because if it's one character and it develops some personality traits in some stories that are still under copyright, then everything has to be under copyright. Which I think it makes it even more complicated. As you mentioned, some things are very clear. It's like, I know, uh, you know, if you think of The Wizard of Oz or a cartoon that changes how it looks 10 years later, 20 years later, you can't use the new one, but you can use the old one. But here, they're just saying that his personality changed. So it sounds like Sherlock Holmes' personality they claim it's still under copyright. It's, it's it's stretching the kind of the terms and the legality of this for sure. Uh, in the one major court case, which was called uh, Klinger versus the Conan Doyle Estate, uh, which was in 2014, it, the judge did. This was, in, I believe, the Ninth Circuit Court or Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. They ruled that. Anything in those stories is technically still part of the estate, but it's, it's interesting. I Anyone that knows me knows that I'm a huge skeptic of long copyright terms. I actually gave a talk at Stanford last year, or it feels like last year. It was this March, <laughs> but 2020 is a long year about long copyrights and why they're bad for creativity. And this is just evidence of that. Copyrights were designed to protect creators and the direct descendants of creators, but mostly the creators of these works and make sure that, uh, for example, Charles Dickens can't write a book and then it's copied 
word for word and published by somebody else and he gets no money of it in America despite him being from Britain. That's what it's intended for. It's to protect the author and their the right of them to profit off their work. It's not designed for people that are two generations from even having met Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to profit off because just their great granddaddy like wrote these books that everyone loves. Like everyone knows Sherlock Holmes. They know who this person is. He lives in your mind far more than he lives in these works. And especially with works like Sherlock or elementary or the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes films. I'm sure. I, I don't know. Maybe they're public domain. I'd imagine most of that stuff's pulled from the public domain because they are more of the jerk Sherlock, right? Right. Who knows? <laughs> it's weird. No yeah, emotional Sherlock. This is a, a, yeah, this is a, just a bizarre case. Based on precedent, I imagine they'll win it. But the good thing is that all of these things will be out of the public domain in, within the next five years. And the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle estate is going to have to just, you know, find a new job besides suing people. So excited to see uh, what happens to them. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot and ask you to elaborate a little bit because... I think for things like the Conendal estate, where so much of the work was kind of, uh, you know, in the 1910s and the 1920s, it hasn't been updated as much. I know you also have opinions around things that have actually continued to be kind of built on in the past even couple of years, a couple of decades. So in terms of this legality, right, I, I imagine one of the worries in Kevin's, where the question comes from, might be is can these nuances be used to just continue to increase copyright limitations and copyright limitations in this case we talked about it looks like it won't based on precedent but kind of uh, why does limiting this ability even for corporations and not like estates Mm -hmm. it might be a good thing so I think Aton here is trying to ask about Mickey Mouse without saying Mickey yes. Mouse. I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a t- <laughs> nobody. This is not on video, but I'm wearing a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. So. I'm not against him. Just saying. Yeah, I'm. I'm not against Mickey Mouse either, and I am not against creators, especially when a creator is more broadly defined as a corporation. I don't, I'm not against them profiting off their works or continuing to make new works. I'm just against them stagnating and not making anything. And that's kind of my my take on Mickey Mouse is I think Disney absolutely has the right to continue evolving the Mickey Mouse design. If you look at the Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse versus the one on your shirt, which is a, let's see, he can you move your shirt up? Okay. He doesn't have filled in eyes or he has filled in eyes. So this is like, I don't know, like 60s, 70s Mickey. Right. Right. Anyway, the designs evolved like 20 times since then. That's fine. Evolve the design, whatever. The new design is covered under copyright. The old design is not. Cool. What I and and also if you look at like Mickey's friends, like Pluto or Goofy, they all came out after Mickey Mouse, and they're going to expire from copyright way after him. So his copyright is about to expire in like four years. Uh, Minnie, I think, is also four years. But that's just the original designs. It's not any of the new characters, not any of the friends, any personality changes because. Like, I don't know, he didn't have his voice whenever he was in Steamboat Willie. He just, like, kind of danced around. And I think that's good because it means that it force it is a forcing function for people to be creative. And in four years, somebody can just make a Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse cartoon, like, like a different Steamboat Willie, like Steamboat or Spaceship Willie. I don't know. <laughs> but they can't make something with Pluto on Spaceship Willie. They can only do it with 
Mickey Mouse. I think that's fine, as long as you're continuing to evolve. The thing that frustrates me is Mickey Mouse really hasn't been in that much IP or actually interesting stuff since, I guess, Fantasia in 1940. It's what I argued in my low-key note speech that I gave at Stanford. I still argue that today. Fantasia is really the last interesting thing he did. Like, I don't know, fun and fancy free, like Mickey's Christmas Carol. Whatever. Yeah, there are like, a lot of, like, side there's, adventures. There's, there's a lot of side stuff. But, like, I don't know. He's old enough. Like, let people play around with Mickey Mouse. Like, it's not going to hurt Disney. They own the original cartoons. They own the ability of Mickey to interact with Luke Skywalker or whatever because nobody else can do that. Like, they have unique synergistic opportunities that nobody else has. Mickey Mouse expiring is not going to hurt him. It just brings some competition to the fold in competition. As we say always say on the show, competition is always good. Yep. You can, I think everyone can see that thread going through the episode of how we, we yep. really support all of, all of this. It's yeah it's just creativity comes from so many different places that trying to limit it in whatever way possible at least in this scenario where it feels like an you're going way above and beyond what it's like you said right it makes sense to protect the creators it makes sense to limit what others can do with something that they didn't create however taking it to the extreme you do start limiting what what can be done and that's that's not good for consumers. That's not good for creators. And then you can also start getting into gray lines, right? Of saying like, oh, this tiny little thing comes from me. So you can't actually use it. And then you, the space of available creativity, even though it might seem infinite, starts getting limited, right? So then yeah. you can say like, oh, you can't have a mouse that speaks because that's Mickey Mouse. Like, what? What do you mean? Or you can't have a dog that is yellow because Pluto is yellow or any of these types of things. And the irony here is that Mickey Mouse was born out of the fact that Walt Disney created this character called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit for Universal first. And then he started his own thing and Universal owned the rights to Oswald. So he made a different character called Mickey Mouse. That's like kind of the same thing, except one's a rabbit, one's a mouse. And it's all fine because they're different animals. I mean, it's just so funny watching like all this ripple throughout history. Yeah, funny story about Oswald the Rabbit. Disney, via ABC, traded for him. They sent Al Michaels, who is now one of the most famous uh, sports broadcasters, in exchange to get the rights back for Oswald the Rabbit. So some trivia for anyone that might be interested in, this, in these topics. As, as Eitan wanted me to remind all of you, sports might not be my bread and butter, but he <laughs> knows sports. And this is evidence of Aton liking sports. So I'm still going to say we don't know sports, but he can uh, fight <laughs> me on that. You're using the royal we just to speak about yourself. Exactly. We'll talk about sports another time. Definitely <laughs> stuff to talk about there. <laughs> I, won't, I won't make you tolerate me talking about sports. That's okay. Well, in continuation of the fact that you have a Tokyo Mickey Mouse shirt on, something that we really are trying to get into over the next few episodes is we really want to touch theme parks more than we do it's hard to talk about theme parks right now because there's not a ton of theme park news and we really don't want to touch the third rail of how disney's doing with reopening theme parks because one we haven't been there two we don't know three it's a bizarre political fiasco in florida so we just don't want to touch that right now but 
it's important for us to to cover it in the show as like a major experience based entertainment uh, piece of the media world. So with that, I just wanted to like lob a question at you personally, Aton. Why do you love theme parks? Where did that come from? Why do we care about doing theme parks on the show? It's a, such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I've had an interesting... I was just thinking about this the other day. Kind of... Roller coaster of a life of how I think about theme parks. So, for background, I grew up in Mexico. Um, my family had a chance, we were lucky enough, to be able to travel and to the U.S., quite regularly for Mexico is pretty common to come into the US for people that that can do it and just starting there like coming to the US and stepping into the airport was an it even smelled a little bit different getting to a rental car getting into the highways that were they're mm-hmm. significantly wider and you saw restaurants that you couldn't see and I saw Toys R Us which at that time it was the only place in the world in my head that you could buy like a Nintendo 64 or whatever Mm-hmm. That had like an aura in my mind, right? Yeah. Even even just that. And as a child, going to Disney, specifically Disney World, was kind of imagine that a hundred times. Getting in the down from the airplane in Orlando. Not even that. I remember the first flight that had a movie was when I went to Orlando and it was a Disney movie. And I remember just being blown away by the fact that you could see a movie in an airplane. I was like six. Right. So that was yeah. like all, all that I needed. But it was just, I don't know, incredible. But getting down from the plane, seeing already Mickey Mouses in places, it just felt like mm-hmm. a land for happiness and, and cartoons. And then just getting into actually the parks was... It felt like a world made for kids, made for me, made for literally just kind of my enjoyment, right? When you're a kid, your parents take you places. And I'm sure as a kid, if you're a six-year-old, your parents tell you, you're going to Paris, imagine, if you had the chance. It might be like, meh, I want to go to Disney. It felt like somebody took a decision to make you happy, which inherently was kind of very powerful. And so, uh, yeah, I have stories of kind of going a couple of times when I was a kid. But then, for example, when I was in high school, I really didn't think about them that much. I went to Orlando once because we were in the area and we didn't even go to Disney. We went only to Universal, which we'll talk about there also, of course, great. But I kind of went more towards the roller coaster type of ride, right? Which Universal, I guess, makes sense. And then after, when I started college, I think I started coming back into Disney because, and this is connected to another question that we had, but... I, I don't know if it's just me becoming an adult or also the geekness. Like, I started to appreciate things that weren't obvious before. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was the level of detail. Maybe it was the smells. Maybe it was the sounds. Maybe it was the operational efficiency of the parks, the technology that goes into things happening, the different creative side of the brain that has to be used to build these things that completely surround you. That kind of really, really touched a nerve in a good way with me. I really, really resonated. And it just became something that I just really enjoy a lot. I I enjoy thinking about it. I enjoy um, talking about it. You and I will see what happens, right? Our first test episode that we did 
it's a two-hour-long exploration of one theme park ride, which yeah. you know we'll see if it if it if it ever makes it out there. But there is just there is a history in them. There is a kind of what they mean that is very unique, and I think there is also something around that around uniqueness. Yes, there are other theme parks that are like regular theme parks. Um, you know, typical roller coaster that don't have what a Disney or a Universal Park have. And that difference is so, so, so huge. And I don't know why exactly I came back, but now it's a very important part of, of my life. What about you? I did want to keep teasing that thread, though, about the fact that we have a secret episode out there about a theme park ride, which is Splash Mountain. We wanted to cover the history of Splash Mountain, the very racist and problematic history of Splash mm-hmm. Mountain and the overhaul Disney's promising to do. So if you want to hear that episode, we can throw it out as a bonus episode at some point in the next few weeks. We, right. we might just do that for fun. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do you know how old I was when I went to a Disney park for the first time? I think you told me maybe like 14, 15, high school, early. I don't even know how high school translates to what I think of high school no. junior high yeah no i was i was 17 years old the first time i ever stepped in a disney park that's okay this is going to be different than what i just oh, said yeah i mean obviously like every american child is pre-programmed from birth to respond to disney like the the first film i saw in a theater was a re-release of the little mermaid in the early 90s it was first came out in 89 but it was a re-release I always thought I imagined that because I was like, there's no way I saw Little Mermaid four years before I was born. But <laughs> yeah, that sounds that, difficult. That's not the case. Apparently, there was a re-release in the mid-90s, so it happened. The first film I remember seeing is Hercules. The first film I remember being in love with is A Bug's Life. So I've always been like conscious of Disney, like every like most American kids. But never went. Uh, a lot of my vacations growing up were to the northeast to visit family because uh, both my mom's side and my dad's side were in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So we would go up there for a lot of our bigger vacations or we'd do more regional stuff. I grew up in southeast Texas, so not a ton of theme parks. I mean, you've got like Six Flags in, in Houston. You have Schlitterbahn or all the Schlitterbahns, but never went to Schlitterbahn, never went to Six Flags. We just were like, I don't know, you, you know me, I'm like... I'm a nerdy kid from a nerdy family. Like we would go to like museums and I would love to go to museums and they were great. Like that's all I wanted to do was go to a museum. I didn't know why I needed to go to a theme park and like I would have gone to Disney in a heartbeat, but like it was never a priority to make the trek to Orlando and especially not to Disneyland. But when I was in high school, uh, went on a high school band trip to Florida. So if it wasn't already cool enough that um, became a theme park dork because I was 17 and went to a theme park. It was on a high school band trip. Wait, went. A, a, a high school band trip? Sounds yes. awesome. You mean they took you to Orlando? That yeah. really has like... Yeah, it was, so it was a... There was like a music festival we played in, like at a high school. It was like a competition. We did something like at a local high school in Winter Park, Florida. Uh, and we did a day at epcot a day at magic kingdom a day at universal a day at islands of adventure and then we did a like coco beach nasa day 
which was far too much cocoa peach and not enough NASA for my taste, but that's another story. Oh, yes. We I would love to NASA talk about another day. Yes, please. We, we need to do a NASA episode because, like, I have a lot of terrible memories of, like, other kids ruining NASA for me because I just wanted to look at event like space stuff and they wanted to go in the play pit. But please. NASA's cool. We'll do a NASA episode, both Houston and Orlando. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's on the book. That's a great themes and entertainment thing. Perfect. Anyway, NASA. No, Orlando. <laughs> Close. The, the first park we went to, uh, we did the two Universal parks, and then we did, uh, no, we did Universal, and then Epcot, and then Islands, and then uh, the Magic Kingdom, which was the, the perfect order to do it in, because I got to see Universal Studios, which at the time was super janky. Like, it was like, they this was before they updated in New York, like, there was still the Jaws ride, and like, Back to the Future had just left, like, Simpsons ride was like one of the newer things. Like, really kind of pretty under, just like, in disrepair and, and awful. So it was like, oh, okay, this is, like, the lamest thing I've experienced. But I guess this was fun, more fun than I expected. And then I get to Epcot, and it's, like, it's way different. You, like, as you say, like, there's you enter, and it's, you were literally entering in, like, another state, essentially. It's, like, the size of Rhode Island. The Orlando complex is massive, and you go in on Disney highways to the Disney parks, and we're at Epcot. And it was during the Flower and Garden Festival, which is a time of year where all the Imagineers do these insane topiaries that they've been working on all year and they install them all around Epcot and we're just there we have to wait for the whole tour group to get into Epcot before we can go off on our little like pods of two or three friends and and go explore Epcot and we're waiting and I'm sitting with two other friends in front of Spaceship Earth, which Aton actually has a Spaceship Earth background right now on his Zoom. Mm-hmm. It's the big geodesic ball thing. What is it? Is a, is a Buckminster, Buckminster sphere? I don't remember what the actual shape is. It's big wacky sphere with pyramids on it that looks like a ball. Uh, and this was 2010? Yeah, no, it was spring in 2011. So it was... Uh, right at it was still when Toy Story 3 was in the ether from mm-hmm. 2010 and the big topiary that they had out front was lots of hug and bear the beautiful pink plush bear that's the villain of Toy Story 3 and we're sitting there and just waiting for everyone to get in and just sitting there and in the film Toy Story 3 lots of hug and bear smells like strawberries just like that's a character trait he has and I'm sitting there and I realize this bear this this topiary smells like strawberries. There's no strawberry plants. or like they're, they're piping in the scent in some way, maybe naturally, maybe artificially. But somebody somewhere took the attention to detail to realize that that plant needed, like that plant display needed to smell like strawberries for the dozen people a day that sat there to close enough to smell the bear. And that's like when it blew my mind. It was like, okay, this is, artificial reality and just like the creation of a space unlike anything i have ever witnessed uh i've been back to orlando twice since then i've been to california a few times i went to shanghai disneyland like it's great and like the disney park's attention to detail is insane the best thing being the five hour walking tour of magic kingdom which is the uh, keys to the kingdom tour highly recommend you get to see the trash compactor you get to see the tunnels underground that's the sort of like nerd area I went into with theme parks, like after going to Disney World for the first time. So a lot of fun, but just like it's it's like themed entertainment of the highest and purest degree. That's why. I yeah. Love it. And I feel like 
anybody listening to this or this is very easy to find in the internet it's very easy to be cynical about these things and just be like well this is capitalism as it's worse and everything is manufactured and everything is fake and that's what they want you to think and you know i i see a part of it but i also see a part that it's i enjoy being happy and similar to the i enjoy these things and I've, I've had the chance for different reasons to go to these places for less than cost over the past couple of years, which does definitely change kind of how you interact with these things. But to your point of the attention to detail and the story that comes to mind is I went there with, I went to Disneyland in, in Anaheim in, with my friends when, when we were like 20 and we were just a group of friends. And we did one of those days, you get there before it opens at 8 a.m., we're going to leave after it closes at midnight, right? Mm -hmm. I'm an engineer. I love puzzles. This is a planet. You figure out the the fast passes and you know what to have to do first to maximize the day. I have a, a, a search of happiness and enjoyment when I feel like I cracked a puzzle, which is great. Right before it closed, we ran into Big Thunder Mountain, which is this great roller coaster. And they literally closed the line behind us. We got in. We rode it, and as we were coming back, you know, you always shout in these types of things, like, yeah, another round, another round, as if they're going to send you another mm -hmm. round, right? Nobody does this in, in any place in the world. It's like, yeah, can I have a donut? Give me another donut. Nobody's going to do it. And the cast members just literally went like, you want another? Yeah, let's do another. And they just sent us. And I remember this friend sitting to me, like, almost crying and saying, in Disney, dreams really do come true. Because even if it is a little bit manufactured, they do go out of their way to make you have special experiences that are difficult to get in other places. And I don't know if this speaks more about how sometimes uh, life is difficult outside of a Disney park, as it is right now, or how much it makes a difference to be in one of them right now, where it just makes me, it makes me miss them, and I wish we can be in them soon enough. But at worst, we get to talk about them in, in more length. In, in one of these episodes. Uh, thanks for bringing it up. You're welcome. It's something that we're both very passionate about, and I hope we get to share that passion. I hope people can see that passion in what we just talked about. We've been going on pretty long, uh, especially since this is a less structured episode. I'm really excited that we were able to have a sort of more intimate format than all of our other episodes and we want to be really loose and, and fun with what we're doing here and i think it's time to bring this episode to a close and with that we have a question submitted actually by your girlfriend ariella mm -hmm. <laughs> how was learning how has learning about the back end and business side of entertainment influenced the way you interact with the products and services of companies like disney as a fan yeah. Take that? yeah, I'm happy to start. I think I touched a little bit on, on for example, on the theme parks. On, I think for me, more than making me... It just makes me enjoy them more. It makes it transcend a little bit. Is I just don't enjoy it as the pure art form that it was meant to be. But I also really enjoy kind of getting to understand everything that goes around it. Whether it is understanding the backstory of a movie and being interested in what, how it's going to get distributed or Mulan moving to Disney and things that might appear kind of very... I don't know. I don't think the word is boring, but very 
you know, procedural. I really enjoy right. thinking about like, how do you make that decision? And what are the variables that you had to take into account? Or when I think about the theme parks, it's like, okay, what is the, again, I'm an engineer, right? What is the variable that you're maximizing for? Are you maximizing for fun? Okay, how do you do that? Okay, I have to decrease lines. Or if I if lines are going to be the same, I have to make them uh, easier to go through them. Okay, so then I'm going to put some theming or I'm going to send a character. Or it just adds kind of another layer of enjoyment that I find. I can definitely go into a rabbit hole of seeing a ranking of the 10th newest hotels in Disney World that don't involve a Polynesian theme, right, on the internet, you can find those rabbit holes. But I think for me, it just, made, it just makes it more entertainment, entertaining. And I think something, yeah. Carl, something that I enjoy of the conversations that I have with you is that I haven't... It's difficult to find a kind of sometimes a forum to talk about all of these things without Ooh. feeling like you're boring somebody else. I feel like here in the podcast, we don't know... How, we can't see at least how <laughs> the people are reacting to us talking about it, which I think makes it a little bit easier, at least for me, to talk about it. Like, if you and I were in a dinner with a lot of other friends, I don't... This is maybe my insecurities. I don't know if I will feel comfortable going into such detail like I do with you when, when we're having these types of conversations. But it's just something that I... Not only do I enjoy, I've seen them translate into other areas of my life, right? I'm in an airport and I'm in a line and I'm already thinking like, this could be improved in X, Y, and Z ways, right? right? Or I see something in a, you know, a, a performer in a corner and it reminds me of something else. Or, oh, they could make it better. Or, oh, they, he must be thinking about X and Y and getting people when they're having dessert because they're about to pay so he gets more money or whatever. And... I think it just. I think it makes it made it better. I think see thinking about this backend made me enjoy things more. What would you say? I have three things I want to talk about in this real quick, and I'm saying them because otherwise I'll forget them. So it's <laughs> Van Gogh, Apple, and Star Wars. Very good. Very good structure. I'm very proud of your framework. Please Thank continue. you. I just wanted to lay out the framework and establish it. Before I get into those, though, I really am happy that we have this forum and even just the forum of our friendship. It's really cool that we found each other, especially kind of in an unlikely place, which was business school, where it's all about how you maximize the profits and the utility of what you're doing, as opposed to kind of, I don't know, in this case, figuring out ways to entertain people figure out ways to promote art and promote others that have less of a position of power than you do. It's really exciting and really cool. And I'm glad that our friendship offers that forum. So excited to see where it, it, it goes in the next few years and next few episodes. There and, we go. Years. And I whatever. Like and I did want to respond to your, your thing about, we can't see how people react in real time. We're about to have our Apple podcast uh, analytics platform set up. At which point we can see minute by minute when people stop listening to the episode. Oh so we can see that soon. <laughs> it's going to drop off when we nerd out about uh -huh, Yeah, Disney it's not going to be great. We're going to see a bunch of like skip ahead, skip ahead, yep. skip ahead. So Van Gogh, Apple, Star Wars. With Van Gogh, I realized in college, I was an engineer, as you were. Uh, that I really preferred looking at the structure of art and how art was made almost as much as I liked the art itself. I liked the metagame of it. And the example I always think of was uh, I went to the University of Oklahoma and they had a pretty actually stellar museum for a school in Oklahoma. 
uh, in the art museum there, they had a Van Gogh. It was a minor Van Gogh, minor portrait. But the great thing about it was there's like no security at this museum. So I could put my face up like as close as I wanted to this Van Gogh <laughs> without anybody yelling at me, which I, I did like once a week. I can't imagine you being yeah. an inch away from the Van Gogh. Exactly. So just like there under it, like looking up in a, in a way that you shouldn't look at the Van Gogh and just like really admiring how much he caked on the oil and really put as much care into like the dimensionality of the painting as much as he did just like what he was trying to render or not render. And just it was always really striking to me just the, how the structure of it was just as important as the like content itself, which I mean is part of post-impressionism in, in general. Uh, but that's when I really started realizing this and just as an engineer realized like I have this training of like always looking at how things are made and always looking at how I optimize them and improve them. But like even then, like you can optimize and improve it just by being better at the skill that you have, whether it's painting or filmmaking or theme park ride designing. And that's that's that. And another thing that led me there was just I was a used to be a diehard Apple fanboy. Less so. I mean I'm still like wearing an Apple watch wearing the beats that came with my computer to record this on a MacBook, have an iPhone, whatever, right? Like still big Apple dude, but I've always just appreciated the level of care and detail they put into their products. But over the last decade or so, I realized like being really into Apple and like thinking Steve Jobs was like a revolutionary leader and figure in tech. That doesn't need to be my personality. Like I can absolutely decry like, the fact that he was not a great dude. He did a lot of awful things. He hurt a lot of people, but he also made a lot of really lasting, important contributions to technology and to our like public perception of what good design is. Really, like I can hold both things in my mind at once and it doesn't detract from either thing. And that's really just like the more I learn about this and the more I learn about how these things are made and learn about people that are making things and are not monsters or become monsters like the more it helps me reckon as a humanity like as a human being with what i respond to in all of this in the art i consume and the objects i like and, and everything and that's what brings me to star wars which is my favorite star wars film the last jedi mm-hmm. it's gonna come up a bunch on this show because it's really not a hot take to defend the last jedi it has a public has this perception of being a failure as a film, like the, the critical and financial reception of it speak otherwise, especially in contrast to The Rise of Skywalker. But anyway, The Last Jedi is really just focused on like what the legacy of Star Wars is through the eyes of like a guy who got into filmmaking partially because he loves Star Wars. And it's just this whole text about how like just because something brought you happiness and something like defined who you were at one point in your life doesn't mean like it doesn't mean that that it has to be the same and that you can you can't change and you can't adapt like as humans we have to adapt we have to change and i think really studying like what makes things tick and change and evolve makes you closer to understanding what you get out of this art whether it's a theme park ride like why do you love this thing over that thing or if it's a a movie or a piece of art on a wall I just the more I know about things, the more I know I don't know, but the more I kind of know what I do like and don't like, and that's that's fine by me. That's a that's a beautiful answer. I'm very interested in these topics, entertainment in general, and each medium in its own way, based on the 
kind of an understanding, maybe not in a scientific way, of course, of how you generate an emotional reaction of someone based on something that you design, right? Whether that is a song or a right. movie or a theme park ride, something that you see, a strawberry smell coming out of a flower uh, teddy bear. And I feel like that's kind of what creates in both of us the kind of that emotional connection, right? We we yeah. care about these things because they they wake, I don't know if this makes sense in English, they wake up in us an intellectual curiosity, but also kind of an emotional curiosity based on, you know, how do we feel when we leave a theater after a movie or how do we feel when we leave um, a theme park at night? Um, and I, I feel like this is probably something that really drove us to, to try to explore this, right? We right. we connect with it at different, at, at a lot of very different levels. Yeah, it connects us with each other, connects us with other people. And I think as people that are, were trained as engineers and realized that that didn't kind of provide everything that we needed out of life and out of our career, it offers a path to maybe finding that one day. So it's exciting and beautiful and strange. And I'm glad we have a forum to talk about it. I'm very glad as well. On that note, I hope this can be a forum for everyone listening as well. We love feedback. We love questions. We can pepper these in other episodes too. It just doesn't have to be a monthly thing. But really do just appreciate everyone who's sticking with us this far and really engaging with us. And please share this with your friends. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platforms. Contact us on Twitter at StuckInDevPod or our personal Twitters, which are also in the bio on that Twitter. And just let us know what you think and stay in touch. That's been this week's Stuck in Development. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Talk to you next week.